Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Shadow Man. On June 25th, 1973, a seven-year-old girl went missing from the Montana campground where her family was vacationing. Somebody had slit open the back of their tent and snatched her from under their noses. None of them saw or heard anything. Susie Yeager had vanished into thin air, plucked by a shadow. Shadow Man by Ron Francel is a pulse-pounding account of the first time in history that the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit created a psychological profile to catch a serial killer. Ron Francel joins me now on Murder Most Foul. Welcome, Ron. Thank you for having me, Jim. I'm appreciating. So let's, um, first of all, this case is not a new case. Um, and so tell us a little bit about the place and the time. This story really kicks off in Montana, rural western Montana, uh, where a family from Michigan has embarked on a great western journey with the family, a big vacation. Uh, they're camped out in a small rural campground uh, and for a couple of days, and they're having a wonderful time. Tomorrow is the next day when we hit the road for the next roadside attraction. Uh, so the four of their five kids cram into a, a tent and all snuggled up in there and they, they go to sleep, excited for the next part of the adventure. In the morning, one of the kids, a sister wakes up and there's a strange breeze in, in the, uh, the tent and uh, she realizes that the, the, the tent has somehow split, but that her little sister, seven-year-old Susie Yeager, is gone. She figures she has gone out into the park to play or to go to the bathroom, uh, but she soon finds out she's none of those things. She's nowhere to be found. So the setting for the story uh, is really starts with that campground. Uh, the, as the story progresses, we are seeing the broader picture of a rural county in, in Montana, uh, small towns, uh, where that the kind of small town attitude affects how this story and how the investigation uh, itself unfolds. And one of the things that we will, as we go forward, this is a multiple uh, snatching uh, multiple uh, murders. Uh, we, you know, there are some that are that in the end we'll we'll find out. Not giving too much away, uh, which ones are verified, uh, but there's there could be more. Um, but the one that you that, that started it all, Susie Yeager, is pretty much a the, a big focal point. Although we continue to investigate the others, and they're all intertwined and decided to be the same perp, but. This one is the one that the perp, this family is the one the perp focuses on. And so a lot of the investigation is focused on this family, which if I'm not, if I don't, uh, if I understand it correctly, the family goes back after a period of time or maybe right away, they go back to where they live. So this is being done or investigated between Montana and you said it was Michigan or Wisconsin? In Michigan, yeah. In Michigan. Uh -huh. And and you're right. They do go back eventually. Of course, their their daughter is missing, and she's missing in a, a part of Montana that's in effect alien to them. So uh, they don't want to leave. Uh, they believe she might still be found. Uh, so they're there for many weeks, 
the, the town folk take care of them. They bring food, they bring clothing, uh, anything they need. These small town people are trying to provide for them. So they're at least physically comfortable, uh, if not emotionally comfortable. Uh, but you're right. Yes, it's, it's Susie Yeager's case that begins this ball rolling. And it, it, because it's a, the disappearance of a child and because it doesn't seem to be an, an, an innocent disappearance, foul play seems involved. Federal law requires that the FBI get involved um, within hours, really. The FBI is involved, and the the, the main uh, investigator in that case is uh, Special Agent Pete Dunbar. Uh, so, this is where the story begins. Even if later we find out that it starts maybe long ago, farther behind in time, a small town attitude that nothing happens here. You know, they, they can't be murder. They must be something else. There's a different explanation. We know everybody. We are us. We're, in effect, an extended family. So very, it, it, there's, it's not possible that one of us did anything uh, nefarious. But those, those early deaths really uh, don't play a role, as you say, until... Uh, more is being learned toward the end, but uh, the um, the fact that they they exist, I think, in this story as uh, one of those little Easter eggs that's kind of mentioned at the beginning, and it doesn't make sense until the end. I love uh, that. I love that a little Easter egg. That's great. Yeah. Now, um, because again, uh, it seems to, as you read it, because the book is a page turner, uh, Shadow Man, and um, these seem, in my mind at least, to, to roll out the, the abduction murders. Uh, well, they're abductions first. We don't know. We don't know even of Susie until till later. But um, how much uh, investigation by uh, Mr. Dunbar is being done before another one pops up? What's, what's the time between uh, Susie and the next one? Well, Susie disappears in June of 1973. Uh, she uh, clearly doesn't turn up. In those early days, uh, Dunbar and local law enforcement have nothing. There, there's, there's no evidence except a sort of neat half-moon hole cut in the back of the tent through which Susie was taken. Um, Early in the morning when a deputy arrives to do the first part of the investigation, he sees a faint trail of footprints off through the dewy grass toward a little parking area. But even as the sun comes up, we lose that too. So by the time Dunbar gets there a few hours later, he's got nothing. He's got no evidence. Uh, he certainly has no witnesses. Uh, no leads and so no suspects. Within another day, they have a thousand people, including um, people who have gathered in Bozeman, Montana for uh, an annual Airstream trailer convention. All of them volunteer to go out and literally beat the bushes looking for this little girl. They come up empty. So from June 1973, as we go, as the days pass, as the weeks pass, and then months pass, Dunbar gets frustrated more and more as time passes until finally uh, after Christmas. It's, it's actually in February of 1974 uh, when this case kind of uh, surprisingly uh, for him takes a different turn. But uh, you can see there from June till the next February, they've got nothing. That, that doesn't mean they're not working. 
they're they're busting their butts trying to find this uh, among their hundreds of leads from local folks. Uh, remember, local small town folks. Uh, there's a lot of uh, misleading tips. Uh, let's let's put this in the context of the time. 1973, the the Manson trials ended not long before uh, Watergate is is going on, or at least the investigation part. Vietnam is raging. The counterculture is raising, raging. We have domestic terrorism by uh, the Black Panthers and the Weather Underground. The people of Bozeman, Montana, of Gallatin County, Montana, and the small town of Manhattan and Three Forks, where, where the Susie Yeager's disappearance really happened, they know, again, it's not us. It must be the outside world because the outside world is is falling apart and chaos is reigning outside of Manhattan, Montana. Their tips tend to be hippies and, and passers through uh, and, and anybody that isn't one of them, but anybody who has certain oddity about them. Uh, so they're sending agents out as is sort of in that circle. Uh, they go to uh, a whorehouse there in one of the small towns and question the, the girls about whether they've entertained any, you know, odd people um, recently. Uh, it, it, a lot of that, that, that element of the book uh, explores what was a a great deal of activity at that point that had ultimately uh, almost nothing oh, to do. No payoff. Now you were, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were then saying that, I guess, after, after, win into, after winter into the spring um, with nothing really, something did happen. Yeah. Another, another uh, female goes missing in February, but she's a 19 year old waitress in the small town of Manhattan. Uh, she's very popular. She, she works at the really the only cafe in town. Everybody knows her. Uh, she was a popular girl in high school. Anyway, she's 19 years old and all of a sudden she's not there anymore. And she was the least likely to have just up and left. Um, she, so her, her, vanishing um, has local law enforcement, you know, interested in finding her. There's, there's no sense at that point that this case might be related to that last summer's case. Right. There, nobody's putting those two things together. Uh, it, it's simply a different crime that's being uh, investigated by the local sheriff. Not uh, The FBI isn't involved. The FBI isn't even interested. This isn't related. So uh, the the local law enforcement uh, investigation uh, it, it starts off again with no witnesses, no evidence, um, and no real suspects. Uh, as as the days pass, their search it's fairly methodical and fairly typical. Their search expands in concentric circles out of the center of, of town or of the crime scene. Uh, it's about 10 days later that a couple deputies are way out of town. They're, they're in a very remote part of the county uh, and sort of going door to door, which was door miles to the next door, to miles to the next door. Um, uh, at these ranches, they come across an abandoned ranch homestead, uh, and they they go out and take to take a look around. Uh, they find this young woman. Her name is Sandra Smalligan. They find Sandra's car hidden in a dilapidated barn and covered up with some hay and some wood and barrels. Uh, now there's concern. They they radio in and a lot of people from the sheriff's office show up 
uh, a very detailed, intensive search of this homestead uh, ensues. And among the things they slowly come to recognize is that the, the ground is littered with small um, shards of bone. And they are scattered as if by the wind. Uh, the, they begin to collect these small shards, mostly none bigger than a small wildflower. And they begin collecting these things this, this terrible stuff and ultimately send it off. Um, and, and it's, it's sort of quickly analyzed as yes, this was a, a, an adult female, a, but be in her late teens, early twenties, given the proximity of the car, uh, they, they deduced this was Sandy Smolligan, but says, uh, a forensic anthropologist from the Smithsonian, there are bones mixed in here that are not an older female. They belong to a younger female, under 10 years old. Suddenly, uh, the FBI is interested because now they think they have two victims and one is probably Susie Yeager, the other probably Sandy Smolligan. Uh, that's where those two cases collide. And suddenly the FBI is again involved. Uh, and the, the, there's a little bit of excitement about this because it seems to be a step forward in the investigation. Unfortunately, they still have no physical evidence. They still have nobody that saw what might have happened. They have no leads that sound like they're even related to this. Uh, so again, they have no suspect. And, and that's where they are again for, for weeks, a couple of months, actually. At that point, a couple of months later, Dunbar, um, who uh, I should back up and say, Dunbar, who's from this place, uh, Dunbar is a Montanan. And even though he had worked in the FBI in big cities and done big cases, he wanted to return to Montana to take care of some ailing parents. Uh, it's, it's odd that that park where Susie Yeager disappeared was actually uh, homesteaded land by his family that had been donated to the state for a park. Uh, so when he went to investigate Susie Yeager's disappearance, he was actually standing on land that his family had once owned. But now we're two years or two months past the, the uh, disappearance of Sandy Smolligan with nothing, he's just as frustrated as ever. Um, he has to report for some routine, regularly scheduled training at the FBI Academy in Quantico. And, and he goes back there for um, this, this normal kind of stuff. But while he's there, he sits in on a workshop by a couple of fellow agents. One of them is an expert in psychology. The other is, is one of the Bureau's um, most respected crime scene analysts. These two guys have a theory. And their theory is that, that if you are looking at crime scene evidence through the right lens, you will learn about this psycho the psychology and the behavior of your perpetrator. Uh, this, was, this was a new kind of theory. Uh, it wasn't real popular with boots on the ground cops. It wasn't even real popular inside the FBI. Uh, in fact, J. Edgar Hoover himself thought it was black magic. Uh, so uh, he, he, he dis 
I, I say discouraged. He, he sort of shut down the whole, uh, the whole process of exploring this idea. But then J. Edgar Hoover dies and a little more progressive leadership comes into the FBI and they give these two guys a little longer leash to explore their theory. So they begin doing these workshops to try to convince other agents that, that there's something to it. And there's Dunbar sitting in the audience one day. Dunbar, who has no idea who committed either of these crimes, uh, and, and starts to think, well, why not? I mean, I got nothing else and I got nothing to lose. So he literally follows these two agents, a guy named Pat Mullaney, the psychology expert, and Howard Teton, the crime scene guy, down to their basement offices in the, uh, in the training academy. And he tells them about these cases. They are intrigued, but they ask for his case files, which he then later has sent to them. Mullaney believes that this is the kind of case that they, they might want to try uh, their theory out. It was kind of low risk. You know, it was a, a, a kidnapping, probably murder, and another kidnapping murder. Um, and, and maybe this would be a good way to test. I mean, it, it, it's not the Unabomber. You can imagine that if this were a mass murder in the middle of Manhattan or um, a mass killing in, in Los Angeles or something like that, it wouldn't be the low risk that this one was. So to test it, they wanted something that was, um, you know, not going to have the attention, not going to have the, the, impact. Uh, they just wanted to test this. So they agreed to do that. They, uh, they agreed to compile uh, this, this outline uh, of the, the perpetrator, the unknown subject, which we now know is as unsub. Uh, but, uh, and, and so they do. And they, they, they put together this outline, which they are not even really sure what to call this whole process. So they just call it criminal profiling. Uh, and, and they catchy, catchy. Yeah, yeah, it's catchy. It, it is. And, and they were just sort of, it was just sort of a placeholder to them, you know, and we'll figure out what to call it later. Uh, so, that's what happens. They compile a, a, a profile. Uh, that's roughly 15 elements. Uh, that expands a little bit as they learn more in this case. Uh, they get a little, a little more suggestions. Some things happen, and we'll probably talk about it, um, that add to their understanding. Uh, by, the, by the time they've built their whole profile it's about 20 items and so now of course uh the communication continues between dunbar and them but uh dunbar goes back has to go back to montana and do the as you say the boots on the ground he's not sitting in his office going well i'll work on something else and wait till right. they tell me who to wh wh where the door where you know where he lives and and you know how old he is and this and you know well, who his mother is and all that no i'm just going to go right. back and do my right. work so during that time um what is the boots on the ground finding or how are they progressing well part of the conflict between the boots on the ground and these these clairvoyant black magic practitioners uh back east was that that the boots on the ground believed that you solve crimes by talking to people, by knocking on doors, and, and a little Sherlockian deduction. You know, uh, they didn't believe in this mind reading crap, and and so and they didn't understand it either. It, it, to a certain degree, there was a belief that these guys were trying to put their finger on the guy. 
when in fact, no, they were just trying to narrow the pool. They, they didn't know who that guy was, but they were trying to help the, the law enforcement to narrow the pool so that they weren't looking at a hundred thousand people who live in the count, you know, in a state or wherever, a big city, but that they might be looking at a pool of a hundred uh, and, and to focus their efforts a little bit. So there was a lot of misunderstanding there, but yeah, Dunbar is back. Um, that he's got a little narrower pool. Dunbar himself is not a believer. Uh, but again, what does he have to lose? And he's listening to them and, uh, and they're giving him some really interesting, uh, information about who he might be looking for. Uh, but even there was some some suspicion even about that, you know, were they just guessing? Um, so there's that friction that's going on. It's a mild friction going on. Uh, plus the actual investigation is kind of stalled. Um, you do, to address your question more directly, that Dunbar is. Um, narrowing that field and looking at a few people that would fit. Nobody's really turning up. They're local guys who were, um, you know, had, had crushes on Sandy Smolligan and um, a couple of guys who were paroled sex deviants. Uh, and, and they were, I don't know, the usual suspects is cliche, but it, they were looking at those people. And then there were a few people that were suggested by the town folk um, who primarily were just odd. You know, the, the, the locals didn't have any evidence that they'd actually committed crimes. They just said, well, they're odd. Um, among them was a guy who had uh, dated Sandy Smulligan one time and and uh, she refused another date in her polite small town girl way, but he would send chocolates and flowers, but it was always the same. She had a, a soon to be ex-husband. Um, she had a, a kind of regular boyfriend at that time. Uh, they, they, they were just, everybody was on that level. One of them, um, the guy who gave the flowers, they actually gave him a lie detector test and he passed with flying colors. Uh, but his name kept popping up. People kept saying, oh, but he, he's, a, he's an odd guy. Uh, Dunbar talked to him once. Um, uh, this, here, this is a young uh, Marine back from Vietnam and... Uh, he, he owned his own carpentry business. He bought uh, local houses and renovated them and rented them out. He was fairly well-spoken, um, dressed nicely, had absolutely no record. Uh, he, he was uh, in, in Dunbar's gut. He, he wasn't a killer. But the more profilers were learning here, the more they thought, he, you can't dismiss this guy. Now, the other, the other thing that you mentioned, I mean, we should mention the gentleman's name now, of course, David Meyerhofer. And as you indicate in the book, one of the things that probably kept him a little bit on the radar was that he was sort of a cop wannabe and he kept showing up, again, a small yeah. town, but he'd show up where investigation was going on. And says, is that sort of a good description of him? Yeah, he was a cop wannabe. He, he really liked the idea. He presented himself as somebody who wanted to help that, you know, kind of the Marine uh, courage, the Marine way to protect people. And he presented himself that way. Um, and he did show up uh, in odd places. He would, you know, some deputies might be having lunch at the cafe and David would walk in, see him stride right over and, and sit down and they would chat about a number of things, including where the, where the uh, investigations, you know, stood. Uh, and if he, if he could do anything, he offered his, his help. Now, one so, of, one of the things that, that interests me too, is that 
I think a, and it's a horrible way to put it, a break for the police was the second, the, the Sandy uh, case, because the other, um, Susie was someone from out of town, not, no connection, no relatives, nothing, just being there and then gone. This was a local case with local connections. And if you decide, which they did, they, I'm assuming based on the burn pit, they decided that, that there was one perp and, and two bodies. So at that point, you can go and investigate the one that you got a better connection to. Yeah, and and the um, the the Susie Yeager case was a you know had a little bit less to go on. The Sandy Smalligan again, you had people coming out of the woodwork. At this point, it seems a little less likely that Sandy Smalligan was taken by an outsider. In fact, one of the uh, one of the elements in the profile was that you're looking for somebody who's local. And th that challenged the narrative a little bit. Uh, and, but their logic was that you have somebody who's bold and who knows where he might, you know, navigate through the dark he knows a place where he would take them to, in this case, that abandoned homestead. Uh, he also knows the, the ineptitude of local law enforcement, and he knows what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. And that's from the profile. Uh, and obviously, there's going to be some pushback about that from local law enforcement. Dunbar uh, is a local guy even though he's, he's got experience elsewhere. Um, so uh, the, the narrative changes a little bit because of that, that we probably have a local guy doing this. Uh, there were other elements of the profile. You know, it's a guy, it's not a woman. Uh, and and one, of, one piece of the profile was that Susie likely died within a few hours of her abduction. The um, one of the most fascinating ones, uh, though, was uh, the profilers believed the unsub had internalized this this crime that that his relationship in quote marks was uh, his relationship with Susie and probably with Sandra were. Um, very important and personal to him, uh, all, and, and that he would, as a result, celebrate um, an anniversary. Now, they don't know what anniversary. Maybe the anniversary of disappearance, of, of some other key moment, but they said it's likely he will, and it's likely he'll reach out to, his, to the other part of his family. Which were which is the family of Susie? Um, they, of course, had already gone back to Michigan uh, and were fielding almost daily calls from hoaxers and clairvoyants and uh, even the 1974 equivalent of trolls uh, who just wanted to mix things up and. Uh, the FBI's profilers, Teton and Mullaney, suggested to Dunbar that a, a recording device be installed on the family phone, which they did. On the one-year anniversary of Susie's disappearance, to the minute, as it was pointed out, uh, the phone rings. And Marietta Yeager, the mother, picks it up. Uh, and there's a man on the other end of the line. Uh, he claims he, he was Susie's abductor because of the hoaxers and the scammers and the trolls. Um, she wasn't completely convinced until he, he described uh, a physical deformity, very small, very minor, uh, that she hadn't even mentioned to the FBI. So there was absolutely no description of her 
out there in public that would have included that. At that moment, they know, they, she knows she's got the right guy, uh, that this is her daughter's abductor. He claims Susie is still alive, that he's brainwashing her to, uh, to, to be his girl, uh, that, um, that he's doing all kinds of things, um, not sexual, not, not, not nefarious, just being a father, taking her to Disneyland, things like that. Uh, Marietta you, is sick at heart. She's grieving. She's scared. But by God, she stands in there and talks with him. Not, not aggressive, not yelling, not weeping. She's standing there having a conversation with him that challenges him, that asks questions, um, that insists that he should give her back, her daughter. Um, she's very strong. This phone call that, that began uh, tauntingly, sadistically, he's trying to hurt her, goes on for a long time. And it's, of course, being recorded. Uh, by the end of the conversation, he's nearly weeping. He has broken down. Uh, then they hang up. In their analysis, then, the FBI's profilers say, we have a man who uh, has a, a difficulty with strong women. Marietta exuded strong, not, again, not aggressive, not uh, not abusive, not anything. She's just strong. She stands in there with him. Uh, so the profilers get another clue, another actually several more clues about this guy, but uh, they they still don't know who it is. They don't have any idea. They've just got a little bit better profile. Now, and again, uh, it, again, recounted in your book, it is chilling. You have a lot of the, the give and take. Um, and again, I'm assuming because did you ever hear a tape? Was there a tape released by Freedom of Information or? No, not a tape, but but a complete transcript. A complete transcript. So, so what's so, presented in the book is in the book. Exactly yes. Their exchange. Yeah. Their exchange is in the book. And of course, this is one of how many calls over the period of time that that he does make. Over a period of uh, several more months, there are, I believe, three more calls. Um, in each one, there's a little more information garnered. Uh, finally, well, the, the third call, the, the FBI ultimately determines through, uh, you know, uh, some details there in the book uh, that the call was placed um, uh, from a low slung ratty wire that had been um, stretched across the plains of Montana to a house. Um, and that had somewhere out in the, the emptiness, somebody had tapped into it uh, with a, a normal, telephone company uh, device that that we've maybe all seen uh, or heard of. And, and so the, the, the conclusion from that was, and this was Dunbar's, was that they were dealing with somebody who had at least modest uh, capabilities with communication devices. Uh, they begin to, now they're beginning to center on Meyerhofer a little bit because Meyerhofer in the Marines had been a communications uh, Marine. He, he, that's, that was his thing. He knew radio. He'd been trained in all of this. Uh, so now he's, he's rising on their radar. He, so he's taken in for a second lie detector test. He, 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 of course, insists he's just being harassed. 
you know, because he doesn't have a girlfriend and because he's a little asocial and, uh, but they take him in. And again, he passes the lie detector test without any hint whatsoever of uh, lying about anything. Just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. So again, Dunbar goes back to, uh, he's not our guy. The profilers are not so sure, and they, they urge him to stay on top of him, and, and Dunbar even argues. The way he's passed two lie detector tests, and the profilers said he should be able to pass lie detector tests because if he's a psychopath, he's wired differently, and uh, polygraphs measure reaction, your physical reactions uh, in lying or telling truth telling. And uh, so if he's wired differently, the, the polygraph is going to react very differently. And at this point, he still doesn't have it. He hasn't asked for a lawyer yet. He's gone. No, he he's ask. gone through he, two, two lie detectors. I, I don't need a lawyer. I didn't do anything. I'm, I'm not your guy. Quit harassing me. I'm getting a little bit tired. Um, ultimately, uh, Dunbar at, at the, at the suggestion of the, the profile, administers, well, takes him to the Montana medic, uh, uh, mental hospital and has a truth serum test administered, uh, by, by experts and, and not a lie detector, but something different and a little, little more um, science involved, but uh, they thought, you know, this would be superior. He passes that one. It was flying cone. Now Dunbar that, you know, this Meyerhofer guy has popped onto the radar and then popped off uh, the FBI's radar um, three, four times. Now Dunbar is, he's not our guy. But uh, he, he puts, uh, again, at the advice of the profile, he puts Meyerhofer under 24-7 surveillance. It's, it's, it, uh, it's also open surveillance. They want him to know they're watching him. One night, the phone rings again in the Michigan home and Marietta Yeager answers it. And this time, um, well, let us back up a little bit here. At some point, the profilers believe that it's Marietta herself who might shake him. And so they arrange for a face-to-face -face meeting between Marietta Yeager and David Meyerhofer. Uh, she again confronts him in a way that she, she tells him she knows he's the guy. He denies it, of course. And, and throughout the whole thing, he's doing it as a polite uh, but, but insistent uh, guy. And she keeps pushing. He keeps pushing back. And when it's over, there's really no more evidence about him. Then, then again, that night... That, not that night, but, but the night that I referenced earlier, which is a few weeks later, the phone rings at their house. And uh, again, that man from earlier is on there, again, insisting that he still has her daughter. She refers to him in the phone, uh, in the phone conversation as David. And he says, I don't know who you're talking about. Who's that? And but at some point in the conversation, he puts a small girl on the line or holds the phone up to her and she speaks. He says, um, mommy, he's a nice man. I'm, I'm fine. Don't worry. This would be, you know, 14, 15 months after Susie's disappearance. And Marietta is not convinced it's Susie, but it's been a long time. The FBI, on the other hand, thinks that if, if the caller has another little girl, they better move in. Even if they don't know it's this guy, they better move in on Meyerhofer. 
and they do. And David Meyerhofer is arrested on a Friday afternoon in on the main street in Montana, uh, in Manhattan, Montana, uh, and and taken into custody and charged with the kidnapping and murder of both Susie Yeager and Sandra Smalligan. Is there any indication? Uh, again, I've missed this little tidbit. I apologize. I read your damn book twice, uh, <laughs> and and I miss this. Do we know who the little girl? Does it turn out to any? Is it a sister, a brother? I mean, a sister or um, someone off the street? We don't. He never tells who that. Okay. I mean, he we know it's not Susie. He never. He never reveals it. In fact, FBI analysts believe it might have just been a recording that he played on a tape recorder or something. Yeah. Uh, who originally did it? They didn't know, and it never came out. Um, but uh, the time was now. They had. They felt they had to move. They they arrested David Meyerhofer. Um, they determined ultimately that the phone call was placed from a Salt Lake City motel room uh, that would have required him to slip away from the FBI under the cover of darkness uh, and then get to Salt Lake City, place a call and get back. Uh, another element of how he operated so efficiently in the shadows. Uh, so uh, now they, they need to act. So he's arrested and immediately they mount a search of the little converted garage where he lived. Um, and what they find there is ghastly. They, they find um, human remains. They find in his freezer a preserved hand and fingers that they later can determine is uh, Sandra Smalligan's hand. They find packages of uh, what, what appear to be ground hamburger, but they also later determine were human flesh uh, that he had made into hamburger. Um, at that point, they knew what they had. Uh, they knew they had the right guy. They called Meyerhofer's lawyer, who had who believed in Meyerhofer, who believed he was being harassed, who believed this poor guy was being persecuted. Uh, they asked him to come to the house, and they uh, sort of, in a cynical cop sort of way, uh, put this evidence in front of him. Uh, the lawyer uh, leaves the house and pukes on the front yard. Uh, he knows David Meyerhofer is dead. He, he's, he's convicted before he's even had a, an initial appearance. There's no way he's going to avoid the hangman's noose, which was the, the method in Montana in 1974. Uh, so he uh, goes back to David and, and in the jail cell that Friday evening and, and is agitated to say the least. He's pissed off. And he, he tells Meyerhofer he's going to die and that the best they can do is you know, appeal it or something to forestall the death Meyerhofer suggests to him that, or asks him, if I could give them more, would they take the death penalty off the table? Can we make a deal? The lawyer is as shocked as anybody. Um, Meyerhofer tells him what he's got. And he, the, the defense lawyer goes to the prosecutor and makes this offer. If you will take the death penalty off the table, we will give you four murders, not two. Uh, the prosecutor and Dunbar or, and the sheriff, everybody's astonished. I don't think anybody in, in the system 
or later even in the community were uh, expecting that. So he has his initial appearance on sat on Friday night. Saturday, these conversations are going on about the death penalty and the deal. And, and after midnight, Saturday, they pull him into an interrogation room. Actually, it's just the sheriff's office, but uh, where he sits with his defense lawyer, Dunbar and the prosecutor. And Dunbar elicits from him during a, a more than two hour interrogation detailed confessions about these four cases. There's a suggestion that he might be involved in some other uh, crimes, but the, the goal that night is to get a confession to each of those four and enough details to be able to prove that, yes, he was the guy. Um, and, and so Meyerhofer confesses to Susie, to Sandra's murders, but he also confesses to two murders that happened in 1967 and 68, both little boys, uh, teenage boys, young teenage boys. Um, and one was a shooting off of a bridge when Meyerhofer himself was only a senior in high school. The other was a year later, a Boy Scout who died of head trauma and stabbing in the middle of a campground full of 300 other scouts on a weekend camp over. Uh, it happened to be the same park where Susie Yeager disappeared. Um, so now, and, and those two earlier murders had always been chalked up to horseplay or an errant shot that was accidental. Um, now they had this, but they've all been up since early Friday. Uh, they're all tired and they know they can come back in the morning or later that day, tomorrow for the rest of the week and quiz him about other cases. These particular four murders happened there in that county. So uh, they all went to bed and they took, they took Meyerhofer back to his cell around 4 a.m. that early Sunday morning. Um, suffice to say, by I think 8.30, uh, he's dead. He commits suicide. Suddenly, we don't have a lot of questions answered. And there's not a lot of, uh, it, the, our crimes have been solved, right? They're, 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 we, we don't have a lot more to do. A few things pop up, but they're minor. And, and everybody moves on. So as, as a result of that, we don't have a complete picture. The profilers were never able then to go back and say, why did this happen? Why did you do it? What happened in your life that made you this way? It's also important to know that these four cases were right there in Gallatin County, Montana, because he's, his deal with the, was with the county prosecutor in Gallatin County. If he had confessed to any murder crime outside of Gallatin County, he would be again subjected to the death penalty because that, he doesn't have a deal with those people. Today, there's uh, the, the forensic psychologist that I worked with uh, as kind of advisors to me, uh, and one of them being an FBI profiler himself, um, said there's almost zero chance that he didn't kill others. And knowing what we know today about serial killers is almost no chance, they say, that between 1967 and 1974, he wasn't routinely killing people. So uh, I agree with the profilers that there's next to no chance that, that he didn't operate. Another thing that's really interesting, uh, those 20 elements in their profile, they were right on all 
of them except one. And that one, they weren't wrong. They just never had a chance to see if it was true because they didn't get a chance to talk to him. So um, that they were operating without a roadmap, without any rule book, without any huge database that they have today, that they would be, you know, next to perfect on their profile is really startling. The afterword in the book is written by uh, a guy named Mark Safarik, who was himself a supervisory special agent in uh, the behavioral unit of the FBI. So he knows whereof he speaks. He was in the next generation after Teton and Mullaney with Profilers whose names we recognize today, Robert Ressler, John Douglas. Um, so he's in that next generation and he knew Teton and Mullaney and he knew this case. Uh, so uh, yeah, we, I was delighted that he would come aboard and endorse this this book and to talk a little bit more about the history and the importance of of the whole practice. So uh, there was just, a, for all the suspicion about hokum and black magic and voodoo, um, this, this was in a sense, old style uh, deduction and, and, and cop experience. Uh, boots on the ground were suspicious of that interpretation, but Teton and Mullaney were actually operating like cops. And, and one might ask, well, why did David Meyerhofer go to such an extent to take the death penalty off the table when he was going to kill himself four, four hours later or, well, the next day? Um, and, and my answer is because it it was his final act of control. When they arrested him on the main street on Friday afternoon, he lost control of the situation. Somebody else decided what the next thing would happen would be. David Meyerhofer took it back by killing himself. Well, Ron, uh, it's time to bid you adieu. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want to again um, thank uh, Ron uh, Francel for visiting us today. His book is Shadow Man, fairly new book. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it, I'm sure. Uh, in fact, it, it, I just at uh, Barnes and Noble, it was featured on a Anywhere. table as Anywhere. a new book at any bookstore. And uh, do you have, I forget how I found you. Do you have either Facebook or did I get your Facebook or uh, website? Yeah, I'm on social media. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, my website is www.ronfrancel.com. And that's F-R-A-N-S-C-E-L-L. -L. And um, you can find more about Shadow Man and all my other books. Now, as I, I just from the cover, and I think even the inside, I wasn't able to tell because there'll be some text that I've got to put with this. Is Shadow Man one word or two? Two, uh, I'm sorry, it's one word, one word with two capitals. You see what I'm saying? Oh, so you kept it together, but without shadow, space. yes. Shadow, S capital S. Yes, correct. Good. Okay. So, hey, that's your choice. You're you're the author. You can write your title any way you well, want. Well, no, I can't. Uh, <laughs> in fact, publishers have the final word on that. Okay. That happened to be my choice, but they were kind enough to allow it. So again, once again, I want to thank uh, Ron for uh, being with us today. Uh, Ron, take care. Thank you very much for having me. In closing, let me offer one last thought. There were several examples in Ron's book of the closeness of neighbors one to another in the small town of Manhattan, Montana. Looking back over my notes, I realize we left out one story. When David Meyerhofer was ultimately arrested, Special Agent Pete Dunbar wanted to personally notify Eleanor Meyerhofer of the arrest of her son. It was the least he could do, 
seeing as he had dated her in high school. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you, my loyal listeners, for tuning in. Please uh, avail yourself of my other podcasts. Um, you can link to them on the podcast website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. There's also an email link there where you can drop me an email with suggestions, comments. Uh, I'll read them all. And um, until we meet again, please take care. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.